Christmas, we celebrate that God came in the flesh. Jesus came and he lived among us, but why? Why would he give up heaven to live amidst our chaos, pain, strife, consumerism? We think we know why he died, but what compelled him to live as one of us? account of Christ's birth from uh, Luke chapter 1 always stirs Christmas memories for me. It stirs memories of watching Charlie Brown's Christmas and hearing Linus recite it word for word at the end. This is the real meaning of Christmas, Charlie Brown. And uh, I don't know if you ran back the memory reel of Christmas tonight, what you would think about, but I think about sand tart cookies and Toll House cookies that I used to help my mom bake and then she would put them in a big potato chip tin. We used to get potato chips in a tin back then and she would put uh, layers of wax paper and then you could get into the different layers. And I would always go in and look for like peanut butter blossoms that still had a Hershey Kiss with them because my one brother used to get in there and just eat the Hershey Kisses off of them. I remember smoked ham with pineapple sauce on it. My dad called it Hawaiian sauce. He was going to make some Hawaiian sauce for it. I remember our cat, the Siamese cat, Ming Toy, climbing up into the tree and toppling it over in the living room. And my dad secured it so, so securely because he had grown up on a farm as a farmer. So he had, he had uh, all kinds of twine and wire and screws and nails. And you could have held up the tree at Rockefeller Center with what he put up there to hold that tree up in our little living room up in Lewistown, Pennsylvania. I remember driving through local neighborhoods on Christmas Eve after the Christmas Eve service in the family wagon in our footy pajamas to see all of the special lights, you know, and going into different neighborhoods to see how the people had decorated their homes. And I remember one Christmas Eve when Danny Long, who was a young guy with me, and we sang in the youth choir together and we caught his robe on fire with the uh, candles, but we just quickly padded it out and we just went on and... Mrs. Richter was so glad that we were able to finish the song that night and that Danny didn't go up in flames. And Danny's still with us, but that robe is no longer with us, okay? I remember the year of the brand spanking new 10-speed bike. It was too big to bring inside from my parents, put bows on it and put it out in the front porch. And my brother, who was in, serving in the Air Force and, and was stationed over in Britain at the time, had given about half of the money to buy that bike for me. And I just remember a card from him on the bike. And it just got us some special memories of Christmas time like that. And the list goes on. And so I, I wonder what your flashbacks would be when Christmas Eve comes up. And some of your special memories. But one thing that Christmas Eve always reminds us of is kind of this audacious claim that Christianity makes. Christianity makes this audacious claim that God became one of us. That God didn't stand outside of our condition and yell and speak love from a distance. He came to us. He became one of us. He put on flesh and blood. That Jesus Christ became the infinite God-man. No other faith on this planet claims that God downsized himself into human form. God went in utero and was born of the Virgin Mary was born to a young teenage girl. It was before the time of prenatal vitamins or birthing centers or follow-up meetings with doctors. So why would God do it? 
Why would he demonstrate his love to us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ would die for us? We've talked about this the last couple weeks, and one of the things we talked about was that he came to introduce the Father to us. John 1.18 says that he had such a close relationship with the Father that he made the Father known to us. If you want to know what the Father is like, look at Jesus. Read the Gospels. Come into a relationship with Jesus. So he introduced the Father to us. And it's no wonder that when the first disciples said, how should we pray? He said, start your prayers like this. Our Father. Matter of fact, the word that was used there, Abba, would have been like our Daddy. The one that we can come to on Christmas Eve and climb up on the lap of and say, our Daddy. It might be a good evening for you to climb onto the lap of the Father and just meet Him in prayer. Tell Him what you need to say to Him and then listen closely for what He need to, need to say back to you. A blessing over you, forgiveness over you, love over you. So Jesus came and He became one of us. God became one of us so that He could introduce us to the Father and clear up some of our misnomers and our misthinking about the Father. He also came to elevate the dignity of all people. One occasion when Jesus was was uh, blessing people and meeting with people in public and tons of people were coming. People started to bring their children. They just wanted Jesus to touch them and speak a word over them and bless them and be with them because they just felt the presence of God around them. They felt the Father. And the disciples pushed the children away and Jesus said, no, 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 you don't get it. Bring the children to me because unless you become like a little child in your faith, you can't enter the kingdom of God. You need childlike faith. And so he put his hands on them and he blessed them. Jesus, people that were outcasts in society, Jesus would look them eye to eye, face to face, forgive their sin, talk with them, heal them. People that other people would have nothing to do with, Jesus would invite in to a banquet or a meal together and be a blessing to them. He did that to elevate the dignity of all people because all of us, everyone is made in the image of God. Every human being on the planet, made in his likeness, we're fallen by sin and God wants to lift us up and lift up the dignity of the individual so they can see God face to face, eye to eye, and have a living, redeeming relationship with Him. He came to put relationship before religion. Something else that we learned says in Scripture that we need to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. That relationship is first. Religion has its place, but it's not first place. And religion only serves to keep us in right relationship with God and one another. And so Jesus came to say that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, all the prophets, all based and hinged on this type of a lifestyle. But tonight we want to talk about He came to rescue the human soul. Why did God come in human flesh. He came to rescue the human soul. We just want to talk about this for a few moments tonight. Matthew 1 23 puts it this way. It says, look, a virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. It means God has become one of us. It means God has downsized himself to become one of us. Have you ever thought that uh, wondered what his destination was, what his final destination was when he downsized himself. When God became a man in the form of Jesus Christ, what was his final destination? Was his final destination the manger? Was it just to get there? 
Was it to live a life in his community and then get to the cross? Was it the empty tomb? Was it an ascension back to the throne, to the right hand of God? What was it? What was his final destination? His final destination wasn't any of those places. His final destination is to set up a tabernacle, a home, inside of each human soul. To bring the soul back to God. And as we say in one of our Christmas carols, and the soul felt its worth. And the soul felt its worth in Christ, in God. That is why God became one of us, to get our soul realigned back with the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Gospel of John puts it this way, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. You know, Jesus came to rescue us, not condemn us. We're pretty good at condemning ourselves. We're pretty good at sinning on our own and condemning ourselves. And I'm going to talk to you for just a few moments about what condemnation looks like. Do you know that when most people are, uh, are, are, are asked this question in a Gallup poll or in other surveys, they're asked, what do you think God thinks of you? Most people's responses come out in this category. God is somewhat disappointed with me. I hope that God will forgive me. I hope that I can find a place in heaven. I hope that God will accept me. But I have the idea that maybe I'm not quite cutting it and that God is disappointed with me. We move in kind of this self-condemnation. Do you know what self-condemnation does to us? It pushes us away from the God who's become one of us. It pushes us away from Him. We think that we're the only people that are maybe the exception to the gospel, that Jesus came for you and you and you and you, but not that section back there, you know? Didn't come for me. Because I'm unforgivable, I'm unlovable, I'm unpardonable, you know? And we think that about ourselves, I'm unredeemable, I'm unreachable. The meaning of the word condemnation is kind of interesting. To condemn means to express complete disapproval of. Means the sentence to a particular punishment, even to death sometimes. Here's some synonyms for condemnation to censure, to criticize, to denounce, to revile, to blame, to chastise, to berate, to reprimand, to rebuke, to reprove. And in some way, in some sense, deep within us, we know we haven't hit the mark in life. And that's actually what sin means we haven't hit the mark. But we don't deal with our sin in a very good way and in God's way when we just condemn ourselves, when we're self-loathing of ourselves. Condemnation keeps us away from God, but there is a gift from God and it's conviction. Did you know that? Conviction is a good thing. Conviction is meant where God reaches out and draws us to Himself. Condemnation, and when we condemn ourselves, we keep ourselves away from God, but conviction comes to pull us to God. It shows us that God is perfect, and He's good, and He's just, and we're separated from Him. But in Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to God, and that we need Him to come and remove condemnation. That's why it says in Scripture, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. But we condemn ourselves and we push ourselves and we renounce ourselves and push ourselves away from God and we're kind of agreeing with sin. And we're agreeing with the evil one when we do that. And so Jesus came to send this message loud and clear. I came to rescue you, 
to restore you to relationship with the Father. I keep coming, and I keep coming. And my destination is you, and it's 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 me. His final destination is us. To set up residence within us, to build the kingdom within us, to win us back, to bring us in, to lead us home, and to fill us with his spirit all along the way. Jesus puts it this way in his own words. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life, and he uses a very particular word, as a ransom for many. Jesus uses this interesting word here, ransom. What does ransom mean? Back in their day and in our day, it means the same thing. Ransom was and is a price paid to get someone back when they have been hijacked or held captive against their own will. So when someone's been hijacked or held captive and someone else and they can't get out of it, they need someone else to pay this ransom to get them out of this hijacked or captivity. In his book, Identity Theft, Mike Bro writes about being hijacked, this idea of feeling hijacked by life or feeling captive. Maybe you can identify with one of these. He said, he asked these questions, have you been robbed? by relationships. Maybe relationships with God and others haven't worked well for you. You feel robbed by them and you feel kind of captive and removed from God in your relationship and other people. And so you're, you feel a brokenness there. And so you feel robbed by relationships. You feel kind of hijacked. Maybe you feel mugged by the mirror. You don't like what you see or who you are when you look in the mirror. And so you try to, you try to adjust that. And, and maybe you get into a different addictions because of that or you try to transform yourself and you take your destiny into your own hands because you feel mugged by the mirror or maybe you feel stolen by success maybe success is such a goal for you that you get on this treadmill in life and you must succeed and so you take your destiny in your own hands again I must succeed but in that you've been held captive you've been taken away and someone needs to pay the ransom for you to get back into a right relationship with work and with rest in your life so you're not so driven by success or maybe you feel like you've been pickpocketed by your past and your past is just too loaded with things that God can't forgive or you can't make sense of and you don't know what to do with it and you feel pickpocketed by your past any one of these four can help us feel like we're captive or held ransom and what Jesus Christ did was he came to pay the penalty for our sin when we try to take back our own life and he says, give your life to me. Whenever we've experienced failure, we get hijacked. And we need a Savior to remove that condemnation and to come and to pay the ransom for our sin. Jesus was on an all-out search and rescue mission when he came here. And his destination was you and me, the human soul, so the soul could feel its total worth in Christ, in God, the God who had made it and created it to set up residence there. Matter of fact, in John 15, Jesus talks about, make yourself at home in my love. Make yourself at home in my love. And the only way we can do that is if we accept him as the one who removes our condemnation and pays for our sin, who pays the ransom for our sin so we can be set free. Last uh, Sunday night, I was channel surfing, trying to fill the void between NFL games. I don't often get to do that, but I was like, oh, this is great. And, you know, my Steelers came back, and they, they, uh, 
They won, so that was great. I'm not here to tout the Steelers just because they're the best NFL team. I'm joking. Some of you are like, you're going to start throwing things at me right now. So last Sunday night, I'm surfing between these NFL games, and I landed on 60 Minutes. I like to watch 60 Minutes, and so I put it on, went and grabbed myself a sandwich, and came back, sat down on the couch, and I was captivated by a story that came on. I didn't expect to do that. It's a little story about Aleppo, Syria. Some of you may have seen the stories of Aleppo. You know where it's at. This is where it is in our world. It's a town that's been bombed over the last couple of years. Intense bombing, past few years. Devastation, neighborhoods that were constructed mostly of concrete and rebar falling down and coming down because of the harsh bombing and the war that is going on there against the people. It's hard to watch because often the bombs devastate neighborhoods and houses constructed where there's just families living there, not military or anybody else, just families. It's hard to watch those reports and not feel hopeless or overwhelmed. And There was part of me when I started to watch it that just wanted to kind of channel surf or hit another channel, but I couldn't do it. I was pulled into it. And I was pulled into it because there was some hope being offered for the people of Aleppo. Do you know there's hope for them tonight? The hope that comes for them tonight is a volunteer group of rescue workers that's risen up. They're a small army of relief workers that has grown into a couple hundred called the Syrian Civil Defense. And they call themselves the White Helmets because mostly what they don when they go out is a white helmet. They usually will have their jeans on that they wear during the day and their shoes. Sometimes they'll have gloves and other things to detect things, but many times they don't have anything that, and they're just marked by a white helmet. And they go into harm's way as soon as the bombs go off. They go into harm's way to try to rescue their friends and people who are stuck in the rubble. Last year, the group was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize because of the work that they do to, live, to dig out both the living and the dead from the rubble left behind after the bombs have been dropped. It's been estimated that over 70,000 women and children and men have been saved due to the courageous work of the White Hats. 154 of these rescues have given their own life because often when one bomb goes off then they go to dig people out, another bomb is dropped while they're trying to do their rescue efforts. They get into harm's way. They dig through the rubble. They reach out to their neighbors they go through the ruins of homes. They work in the aftermath of about 35 attacks per day. A couple of them were interviewed in the story, and when they were asked why they do it, a couple of the young, probably in the early 20 young men said this, we feel like when we dig them out, we're bringing them back to life. We feel like we're bringing them back to life. One rescue took place two years ago when a mother was rescued, but her 10-day-old infant was still buried in the rubble. The White Helmets worked for 16 hours to free the infant, who is now referred to as a miracle child. When the rescue worker pulled the baby from the concrete, from the concrete rubble that was once their home, the reporter who was there said this, it was like the child was born again into this world for a second time for a second time as I watched that story and I thought of the hope and I even sat there in my living room and just prayed a prayer for those people Lord deliver them 
Lord, stop this. Lord, be there. Lord, thank you for the white hats. I couldn't help but to see the parallel between the white helmets and our own Savior who donned flesh and blood, who came to our side, who came to us in our condemnation because of our own sin, who came to us to pay the ransom on the cross, to set us free and to pull us back into that right relationship with the Father and into the kingdom of God for eternity. Syria has hope tonight because people like the white helmets are there working, rescuing, digging. We have hope tonight because our Father is digging through the rubble of our lives. He's looking for the breath of life that He breathed into us long ago. And He pulls it back and He pulls us in. And He says, My child, repent. Turn toward Me. Give your life to Me. I have paid the ransom for you. Come back into relationship with the Father. Christmas Eve reminds us that God came to rescue the human soul. That it was His ultimate destination was to set up His place of living amongst us and in us and through us. And so tonight, as I lead you in a prayer, it may be a time for you to crawl up, like I said before, into the lap of our Father tonight, who is in heaven whose name is holy and to breathe your prayer to him and to hear what he has to say back to you so as I pray you pray let's meet together with our father tonight our father we do thank you for Christmas we thank you for the account written in your word of you becoming one of us thank you for being the good good father Thank you for sending your son to rescue and to ransom us. To remove condemnation from us and to pull us, to convict us and pull us in to a living relationship with you, the God who created our soul and now redeems it. Tonight, Lord, we accept your payment plan for our sin. We come before you. Forgive our sin. Release us from condemnation. Help us to walk in freedom tonight with you. Thank you for setting us free this Christmas Eve. You indeed are the good, good Father. It's who you are. Amen.